a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome to episode five of the Pleasant Good Evening podcast with my co-host Jack Hendon. My name is Sam Levowitz, bringing you another episode after another Sunday Mets loss as the Mets fell in the rubber match today against the Braves by a score of seven to nothing. They uh, lost two out of three over the weekend, Jack. One of those games was really, really encouraging, which we'll talk about for a number of reasons. But the bookend games, the Friday game and the Sunday game, really sucked. Yeah, really sucked. Really sucked. Um, feels like we're we're dead. Like we survived, but we're dead. Season's got to be over, right? Yeah, it basically feels with seven to play. And I think best case scenario, they're like two and a half out heading into a three-game set against the Rays on Monday. Uh, it, it pretty much feels like it's time to eulogize the season. Uh, just we'll, we'll get more into it later because we want to talk about kind of what went wrong this season. But really, in both of these losses on Friday and Sunday, I feel like both were pretty, pretty, pretty strongly epitomized the uh, – what what went wrong with this team? You talk about Friday with Stephen Matz just imploding, as we all kind of figured he would in his first start in a month. And Franklin Killamay, who had looked good previously, but they brought him up knowing they would probably need someone in long relief, and he likewise imploded in long relief of Matz. They gave up 15 runs to the Braves. Uh, and then today, just... The, they had good starting pitching today for like the first time. For, it's from Rick Porcello, his best start yeah. as a bet. And they could not hit Kyle Wright, who came in the day with a career ERA approaching eight. Yeah. He had like 20 strikeouts and 20 walks, neck and neck. And the Mets just like let him blossom into a major league pitcher right in front of him. They got two hits today, or three hits today. And uh, Wilson Ramos was accountable for two of them. It was a pretty, uh, pretty lifeless showing, through and through. Um, I mean, you can blame offense for not really inspiring, but at the same time, they, you know, you combine across two games uh, for twenty-two runs. It's, re- I mean, they got outscored twenty-two to two. I mean, you can't just take out the middle game, but like hypothetically, if you let's say you did take out the middle game, they got outscored in the series twenty-two to two. Uh, it's just un- unfathomable. It's not what you want. No. And they looked good. Like Saturday's game, the, the Fox game, was a fun game. That was solid. David Peterson, six strong innings, gave up a solo homer to Adam Duvall, who hasn't these days in September. Uh, but he struck out 10. Probably the best he's looked in, in the majors so far this year. That slider was really, really working. That back foot slider right-handers. Porcello. Also had 10 Ks today. Um, the two of them combined to give up just two solo homers over 13 innings. It's the best single stretch of starting pitching that the Mets have gotten uh, this season in two games by pitchers not named DeGrom. Uh, and then the bullpen just kind of imploded today uh, after Porcello left after his seven. Uh, Chase and Shreve, this was like the first time that really he hasn't had it, legitimately hasn't had it all year. And Jerry's Familia... Kind of got a little unlucky, uh, but he also didn't help himself. He walked a couple guys, and those both came to score. And let's 
let's blame uh, blame the guy who had the, the big hit, and it was Travis Darno, who kind of broke this game from a one nothing game to a 3 nothing game with a little duck snort two-run single, two-run double, rather, against Familia on a late swing. And, well, Darno has been a world beater for the, for the Braves against the Mets this year. He's been great all year for the Braves regardless, but he's been especially great against the Mets this year. He's driven in 11 runs now. He's hitting 458 in 24 at-bats against the Mets. And I, for one, do not see it as a surprise, knowing um, knowing how things usually go for former Mets against the Mets. But I, I'm, first of all, happy for Travis because the guy deserves this. He deserves the success he's getting. We know he's putting a lot of work. We know he's been hurt so much in his career. And I'm glad to see he's finally having success. It just is painful to watch him so good. He homered on Saturday night too. Like it's it's just painful to watch it so consistently against us. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean it's it's something that I think in a lot of ways boils down to a change of scenery. Like I don't think this it probably would have been a better scene having Darno catching this year than Ramos, for example, but I don't think that the average would have been in the 330s. I don't think the performance would have been this incredible, basically. But it's, you know, what it does come down to is the fact that the Mets did kind of rage cut him in the middle of May, uh, about 23 at-bats into a season in which they'd given him, I think it was six and a half million. They tendered him a contract and they spurned Wilmer Flores in the process. It was kind of a pick one. They traded Kevin Ploiecki. I mean, they pulled out a lot of stops to keep him for the 2019 season and then very quickly uh, let him walk essentially. And um, the fact that he's getting results now, I think it really boiled down to another team with better analytics, better understanding of swing pathways, et cetera, sitting him down and showing him what he needed to do. I mean, it, this kind of, this was something that had been developing in Tampa Bay last year. He hit, I think he put up an OPS in the high seven, hundreds, seven sixties, maybe even low eight hundreds. It was a pretty encouraging sign for him. And then, uh, you know, to see what he's doing now, I'm not that surprised by it. I think it kind of, it's a mixture of the team giving up on a guy too early, but in the same breath, understanding that with all the time that they did give him, that they just didn't have the wherewithal to extract these kinds of results. Uh, cause it wasn't yeah. like he didn't have time. It's just that he didn't have uh, the right combination yeah. of time and resources. No, yeah, I agree with you completely. I mean, they, he was also coming off of Tommy John surgery. He had major reconstructive elbow surgery, and he comes back, they give him that contract, and he gets 25 plate appearances. He gets 23 at-bats. He only had two hits. Obviously, he wasn't actually hitting when he came back, but you know, it's, it did seem a little bit like a situation in which he could have been given a little more rope, yeah. um, especially in a backup role. And then he moves on to the Dodgers, who he got one plate appearance with the Dodgers, uh, and then they cut him. And then he goes to the Rays, and the OPS with the Rays was 782 in 365 plate appearances. He hit 16 homers. Like it was a he was productive for the Rays, and I think really what it was with with Tampa was them just sitting him down and saying, "You are a line drive hitter, hit line drives. This is what you need to do with your swing. Do it." 
Yeah. And I don't know if this is a guy that would, you know, OPS in the 960s, 970s. If we had a full 162-game season, it might level out a little bit. I don't know if he's a true talent, uh, you know, MVP candidate type hitter. But he has been really, really good for the Braves. And he's been absolutely crushing the Mets. Absolutely crushing the Mets. Yeah. And it, it hurts. And kind of ridiculously, Brandon Nimmo said postgame, <laughs> he, he said, you, you wish he was on your team. That's a direct quote from Brandon Nimmo when asked about Darno's success. You wish he was on your team. Well, guess what, Brandon? He was on your team, and your team caught him after a, a week's worth of at-bats. Yeah. <laughs> I just... can't wait for, uh, for some radio mogul or someone to try and spin this into like a knock on Wilson Ramos, you know, basically like, oh, Nimmo's saying you'd rather, you know, I wish he were here and not Ramos, which isn't what's happening. I think Brandon's just kind of wet behind the ears however long he's been around, but it's it's really ironic that that was said. Um, it's a great line. It's, it's <laughs> it, it made me laugh when I saw it because, you know, it's too bad the Mets can't find players like Travis Darno. Yeah. And even when they get players like Darno, players who have, I think, like an actual tangible ceiling, they kind of just, I mean, this is not too far away from, you know, the rope or lack thereof that they were giving Justin Turner like seven, eight years ago when he probably could have been playing a little bit more often than Ruben Tejada was. And they sort of, you know, didn't want to extend him that opportunity. They didn't try and, you know, move him around with Murphy between second and third because David Wright wasn't healthy all the time. And we know that, um, you know, they kind of just let him go and it's sort of everyone acts like it's lightning in a bottle. And it's this shocker that, you know, guy who doesn't really perform with the Mets goes to another team and starts performing. But that's part of your responsibility as a ball club is to actually like take players who on the surface don't look like they're going to be very good. And one example of that that's kind of happening or unfolding in front of us right now is Luis Guillorme because this was someone who coming into this year was sort of, I think, unfairly criticized by a lot of fans for, you know, small sample, not extra base hits, not, you know, kind of a light hitter type player who, for those reasons, didn't really have uh, a future. And yet the Mets gave him playing time and he hit in the high 300s, hit in the high, you know, the mid 400s for most of the year and it's just you know again it, it's still a small sample but that's someone that's giving you something pretty important and the Mets sort of decided midway through the year they were gonna for I get not midway through closer to September they just traded for Todd Frazier and made a statement that they were gonna you know in doing so they were gonna drag their feet and not give Giorme the time of day when he was clearly producing I mean it's you know it's happening under your nose, dude. Like, give the guy a give you know give your players an opportunity. Yeah, and I mean it's like it's what is it the Onion headline that says um, there's no way to prevent this from happening says only country in which this is still happening. It's yeah. like that with is people are always talking about how players leave the Mets and they go somewhere else and they're better elsewhere. Whether it's Justin Turner on a bigger scale becoming a legitimate star with the Dodgers, or Darno, who who went to the Rays and was as productive with the Rays as he probably had ever been with the Mets, offensively and defensively, he turned himself into a very good defensive catcher. And 
it, it's there's a reason for it. It's not random. It is never random in this sport. It is never random why this kind of stuff happens to this team. It is failures to both the self-scouting and to the player development. I'm not sure uh, Justin Turner is ever that good if he stays with the Mets. I'm never sure. I get that people criticize the Mets over cutting him, and he goes to the Dodgers, and he's great for the Dodgers. I don't think he's ever as good with the Mets as he ever was with the Dodgers. I just don't think so. Because the Mets handle offensive players differently. They handle player development differently. They handle coaching differently. It's philosophy. There's no, I mean, there's no, I saw this, uh, I think it was from Mike Petriello today talking about the Dodgers, and, and Jake McGee is a good example of why the Dodgers are just so good, is because he got cut by the Rockies, and in a month with the Dodgers, he has added two miles an hour to his fastball, and his strikeout rate has gone through the roof, and he's gone from a guy who got cut by a different team to a legitimate bullpen option on a title contender. And, and it's no surprise that that kind of stuff happens to the Dodgers and this kind of stuff happens to the Mets. And, they just, yeah. point, and to your point about Giorme, they can't self-scout. They never give these guys the opportunity to figure out what they are. And Giorme is a good enough defensive player that you could have just stuck him in a lineup for a month and a half or two months last season or this season as your eight-hole hitter, your nine-hole hitter, and figured out what you have there. Yeah. And I should, I should probably give context because I realize we haven't explicitly said this yet. The reason we're kind of harping on Guillaume is the team actually optioned him prior to this series on Friday. They desperately needed pitching. Uh, they activated Franklin Guillaume off the 10-day uh, injured list. And in order to make room, because the night before, Seth Lugo, Rosmo Ramirez, and Chase and Shreve had all kind of done enough work to rule themselves out you know, for the near future, at least for this weekend, and they really needed pitching, they needed to sacrifice a hitter. Of course, uh, you could have just always had an extra pitcher on hand, kept Giorme in the fold, and not traded for Todd Frazier, which, you know, I'm sure I'll get, you know, blocked on Twitter for saying this or whatever, you know, if Frazier's listening. But when it comes down to it, they just, like, make these panic deals, and we're kind of starting to reap the... uh, you know, the, the, the results of these deals because they're starting to announce the players to be named later in, these, in that trio of deadline trades as well as the trade they made for Ariel Hurado, which, I mean, that's the other issue. Speaking of pitching, you want to go get a pitcher, you know, because you don't have enough, and that's the guy you pick out, and he's only made one start. He probably will only have one start to his name when this is all said and done. And it was a bad start against a bad Orioles team. He has bad stats. He's had bad stats for a while. And they gave up a minor league reliever named Stephen Valines, who, you know, the lay fan probably is not that familiar with. Uh, And even, I think, some more, you know, prospect-heavy Met fans hadn't really heard of him because he's not necessarily a prospect. He's like 28, uh, going on 29. But he's like a submarine pitcher in the minor leagues who's posted a pretty impressive strikeout-to-walk ratio in the five or six years he's been around. And the Mets basically gave him up for one start of a below-average, below-below-average pitcher. Um, And that's just one of them, but it was pretty short-sighted. Yeah, so Valines, uh, sorry to to correct you there, Jack, but he's 25. Um, Oh, he's 25, jeez. Uh, he was the 10th rounder that the Mets took in the 2017 draft out of 
University of Kansas. He's a reliever. He's a submariner. Uh, he was very, very, very effective in Double A last year for Binghamton, posting a 1.20 ERA in 28 games and 45 innings. Didn't have quite the success when he got promoted to Syracuse and Triple A. ERA north of six in 16 innings. But this is still a guy that could probably and probably will get more major league outs uh, than Ariel Hirado will. Uh, he's a guy that I think the Rangers are probably going to utilize in the near future because I think there's a good chance he can get major league hitters out. He doesn't blow you away as a submariner. He throws in the mid-80s, but he's a guy that, to an organization that is better at self-scouting and better at player development, could have as a useful player. I'm not saying as a closer. I'm right. not saying as an eighth-inning guy. I'm saying as the, the sixth or seventh reliever in your bullpen, when you need some uh, low-leverage outs, you can go to him. I would have rather given the Lions a chance than Brad Brock. Or, you know, there's a couple relievers like that, like Matt Blackham or uh, Riley Gilliam I, that I would have given chance that I, it's kind of mind boggling to me that Brad Brock is still on this roster because he's been really, really bad, especially recently. But, uh, you know, it's, it's this kind of situation where they're giving innings and they're giving playing time to guys who really otherwise should be not on this team. And, their playing time should be had by guys who are younger, who this organization needs to take time to figure out what they have. They didn't do that with villains. Yeah. And they especially have- when it comes to relievers too. I mean, that's like a position that you look at the most successful teams and they're developing around, they're developing their bullpens around young players. I mean, maybe they'll sign someone to forefront as a closer, but I mean, look at the Braves and the, and the group that they trotted out not only this weekend, but this year and last year as well. Like, you know, they have guys like A.J. Minter and Jacob Webb, um, you know, guys like Luke Jackson who didn't come up through the Brave system, but they claimed him on waivers like when he was fresh out of the Texas Rangers system. I mean, nobody is compiling and patching together their bullpen with, you know, lucrative contracts, or at least in the scheme of it, pretty lucrative contracts. I mean... You know, we're still going to be paying Jerry's Familia for a while. We're probably going to be paying Dylan Batances for a while. And you have a guy like the lines, who I, and I understand I just totally botched his profile as a, you know, in terms of age, but like he's, his numbers are still great. Blackham's numbers are still pretty impressive. I mean, I shudder to wonder who else is going to go. I mean, we have a Todd Frazier deal, and we don't even know the Chirinos deal. We don't know who the players to be named later are. I mean, you don't gut young pitching. I mean, they have a a whole slew of middle infielders in their minor league system who they probably aren't going to play all of, and yet they're just handing over pitchers, uh, especially pitchers who are very close to big league ready. And it's, yes, to your point about the relievers, who's got the best bullpen in baseball, you're saying? It's probably the guys who the Mets are about to play. It's the Rays. Yeah. They seemingly just find good relievers out of their ass. Yeah, Pete Fairbanks, Nick Anderson. Fairbanks is like a mix between Nick Anderson and Chaz Rowe. It's unfair. And they're both on that team too. Like they're both on that team. It's it's ridiculous. They trade Nick Anderson is one of the best relievers in baseball. They got him from the Marlins, but to get him from the Marlins, they sent another really good reliever in Ryan Stanek to the Marlins. So it's like 
they're finding these guys, but it's not a coincidence. Like I said earlier, nothing is random in this sport. Nothing's random about this either. They're finding guys because they're good at finding guys because they know what to look for. They know how to scout. They know how to develop. They know how to get these guys to pitch to their strengths. You know, if the Mets had Chaz Rowe, they probably would have said, hey, Chaz Rowe, throw your two-seamer more when Chaz Rowe has the most effective slider in baseball. Or teach him a one-seamer like with Gesellman. Yeah. Rowe is a guy who who gets consistently gets – 12 to 16 inches of break on his slider it moves like three feet it looks like yeah. and the Mets would probably say ah you only have to use that on two strikes really on an 0-2 count when you want a guy to fish go ahead and use that two seamer more it, it it's just it's it's mind-boggling that this team has a couple of of decent arms that they could run out there in a bullpen situation and they don't really know what to, it's even with Drew Smith who it has gotten the bad end of the deal here because he was great in the beginning of the season and he's been on the shuttle between the alternate site and the big league team really because he's one of the few guys on this active roster who has options. And so he gets the short end of the stick. It doesn't matter how good he was. If they need to make a player move, they're going to send the guy down with options. Mm-hmm. He's the one guy in that bullpen with options. I mean, and that's the same deal with Giorme, Is there's There's really just a, a kind of a a dearth of optionable players on this roster. It's a very kind of shoddily constructed 40-man roster. There's, it's very difficult to move players around on this 40-man roster. It's, it's exactly why the, they've kind of were forced to make a, a move with uh, Jordan hum- Humphreys when they wound up DFAing him and sending him for Billy Hamilton. It just, it, it's going to be an interesting kind of thing for whoever comes in and is constructing this roster of the offseason, kind of fix this 40-man roster because it is kind of messy right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the Villains thing just kind of frustrated me to no end when I saw it because it's not – I didn't expect him to be a great player. It's not mm-hmm. the out that I would give for Jared Kelenic, but it is frustrating that this is a guy that I think could get major league outs and they are sending him out. And the other guy that they announced as a player to be named later for the uh, – Miguel Castro trade to Baltimore is a teenage shortstop who hasn't even played in the pros yet named Victor Gonzalez. And I'm not going to get mad at them for trading a guy like Gonzalez. Who's like, you know, he's like 5'11", 155, uh, probably going to be a light offensive shortstop, but he's a guy that they gave uh, uh, not an insignificant amount of money to this past July 2nd uh, or last year's July 2nd in, you know, uh, the, the international tra- uh, signing period. And without even playing a professional game, they're just shipping them off. They did the same thing when they traded for Wilmer Font from the Rays last mm-hmm. year, although Catalina. Uh, they're tr- they they've seem to have no issue trading these lottery ticket type players who are far too young to know what you have. But if another team is inquiring about them, probably a good idea for you to hold on to them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it, the, the conversation about prospect hugging too really bothers me because at the end of the day, we, you know, we look at, you know, these bigger issues like letting Travis Darno walk, or I think a good example that maybe hasn't seen the results this year, but definitely did last year was Hansel Robles going to the angels and, you know, lighting it up as their closer. It's like, you know, you want to talk about, well, how do these things, you know, how do we take these nobodies and get rid of them? And then they go somewhere else and 
you know, set the league on fire. I mean, this is how it happens. This is it's bad foresight. When you stock up your roster with immovable objects, that's essentially what happens. You know, you you hamstring yourself to not having actually developed trustworthy players. I mean, you know, we didn't have to have Steven Matt start on Friday. We didn't have to have Ariel Hurado start that game in Baltimore. And I'm sure when it comes down to it, that game doesn't really mean anything. But I mean, Kevin Smith was there. Now he's not. You know, it's it's like you have these opportunities to actually scope out your younger players. I mean, at least like four years ago, uh, they had a guy like Robert Kesselman who they could just call up out of thin air, uh, you know, to pitch in the place of, you know, John Neese or whoever it was at the time who was supposed to be starting, who wasn't getting it done because they had a few uh, pitchers like that. I mean, and to sort of transition into the, you know, the immovable object aspect of it, at least, you know, in Darno's case, that immovable object, they actually moved him and did something about the fact that he wasn't producing. I personally wouldn't have just tendered him a contract if it was going to come down to this, but at least they ate their losses in that moment. I mean, there are like five or six guys in this team right now who are going to be here for a while longer who the the current front office is just unwilling to, you know, throw in the towel on, unwilling to admit a sunk cost. And I think it's really... It's going to create a pretty uh, interesting scenario for this next GM, like you said. Uh, it's going to start with Steve Cohen picking the right guy, um, you know, and he assumes full ownership. But, I mean, there are a lot of, like, you know, facets of disorganization taking place within this organization. I mean, they're still trying to get Dylan Batances pitching. I mean, why are you trying anything with him right now? He's probably hurt still. They made him pitch a simulated game earlier this week. He obviously was put on the injured list after he uncorked the wild pitch against the Yankees a few weeks back. Uh, His numbers have not been inspiring. He certainly hasn't looked like the guy that the Mets uh, intended to sign the prior offseason. And he's probably going to be here a while, you know, in the coming years because he has the player option that he'll most likely pick up if he wants to keep making money. Um, And yet they're still trying to get him into games right now. I mean, there are so many scenarios within this roster right now where you can look and not only wonder why that player is here, but uh, furthermore, why the team hasn't done anything about said player being there. Yeah. And I mean, you want to talk about bad contracts that are just kind of bad is we kind of finally got some closure on Jed Lowry this week. Um, The Mets in pretty much no uncertain terms said uh, Jed Lowry is not gonna play for the Mets this year he went home he's done he's done he's cooked he's he's they're not even trying to rehab him I get there's a week left in the season but Lowry just went home that's what that's literally what we were told is that he just went home and two years very little transparency no clear indication of what the actual injury was we know it was a left side injury that we knew it was a knee injury but we don't know specifically what kind of knee injury we just knew he had a brace on his knee pcl laxity what yeah. whatever that is it, it, it just uh yeah uh it's glad we have some closure knowing that he's never actually going to start a game and play the field for the mets or get a hit for the mets yeah. uh, but that was he drew a walk he drew one walk last year drew one walk my god i feel bad because you know i don't want to uh, make it sound like 
uh, we're blaming Jed Lowry or that we're blaming the players in particular. And I think this is part of the problem within how our own fan base kind of comes to uh, look at this as a player-specific issue because ultimately this is just, you know, the organization not making the proactive, proper winning decision. I mean, you look at the vitriol and the anger, a lot of which I'm guilty of on my own part toward like Wilson Ramos who really hasn't produced this year. And ultimately it's like, you know, it's not that fans don't have a reason to be upset with him, but I mean, why didn't you just sit him at some point? Like, why are you still putting him through this kind of season when he can't really defend anymore? He can't really run. He can barely hit. Um, you know, why wouldn't you just eat your loss? It's, it's, I think it's also kind of unfair to the player in question. I think what's happened to Jed Lowry is, kind of sad in its own right because this was a team just not communicating anything and almost leaving reporters to talk to Jed Lowry uh, and, and you know, barrage him with the questions because, you know, the guys upstairs weren't giving the answers. I mean, that's just really badly run, and I think it's kind of toxic. And I, I, I certainly think that plays a role in other free agents deciding what teams they do and don't want to play for. Um because, yeah, ultimately, it's just an organization not willing to admit that it's done the wrong thing. I mean, they're doing this right now as we speak to some of their relief pitchers. I mean, they worked Justin Wilson in, I think, four of the last five games. You know, he's like 33, and he throws pretty hard. But, you know, you give a, you make a guy work that many innings, you wonder what's going to happen to him next year. I mean, it's just it, – it's kind of reckless. And what they've done to Brad Brock and Jared Hughes, moreover, I mean, those two – both were on the, the COVID injured list um, and they're still being overworked. I mean, Hughes has been asked to work over 40 pitches his last two of his last four outings. Um, it, it's kind of, it's, it's very going through the motions, to, to put it bluntly. It's not engaging intelligent management on their part. And it's a big part of why we've basically cost ourselves a playoff spot, I think. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're sitting here eulogizing this season mostly by talking about the organizational failures and it's kind of apropos that on the day that I think a lot of people think that the season really died with today's loss uh, there was a giant massive tire fire outside city field it, it, it just it it felt almost sickeningly ironic yeah. that in you know the last week of the Wilpon own New York Mets in a season in which was only 60 games but yet they've somehow, against all odds, fit every single ounce of messness yeah. into those 60 games. It just feels appropriate that that kind of thing, that a giant, smoky, black flyer, uh, black fire, excuse me, um, appeared over the stadium as they were losing a game that probably sealed their fate. And, you know, it just, you know, it just feels, it feels right. It feels like this is the way that this team would go out. There's been bright spots, you know, Dom Smith obviously has been awesome. Michael Conforto has been awesome. DeGrom has been awesome as, as always. The bullpen has been fine. Edwin Diaz has been good, but by and large, this has not been a very fun season to watch. But for other teams, it's been a fun season to watch. So, Jack, let's play a game. Yeah. Transition, transition into this here. We're going to 
predicts with a week left in the season, who's going to make the National League playoffs? Because there are still quite a few spots to be decided. There's eight spots. We know the Dodgers are in. The Braves are in. And I believe the Cubs also clinched a spot. But I think after those three teams, it's open still. Yeah. Um, So to, I guess, elaborate on the rundown, the West is pretty much the two teams that make it are decided. It's going to be the Dodgers and Padres. Um, I think the NL East is kind of starting to materialize a little bit. Atlanta will probably win the division. They're only two and a half ahead of Miami. That's actually going to be kind of interesting to see if they can finish that up. Um, But Miami now three, no, they're four games over 500 now. I think they're in a pretty comfortable spot to win that second uh, division spot. The Central is weird because it's the Cubs who are running away with it, but then the Cardinals and Reds are at a constant tug of war between that second spot. And whoever doesn't get that second spot, I think at least, probably isn't going to get a wildcard spot because these two teams are a game. They're, the margin for them is, I mean, I'm trying to find a way to articulate it uh, intelligently, but the Cardinals and Reds are both like, Right at 500. Um, one Either team could lose and be a game under 500. That would probably, I think, end it for him. Because uh, the current wild, yeah, the, the current wild card situation is Giants, Phillies. The Brewers then, are too, in yeah. the Central. The Brewers are at 500, too. They are all, the Brewers, Reds, and Cardinals are all within a half game of each other. Right. As, as of right this very second, as I'm recording this, I'm looking at the standings right now. But, yeah, um, the Cubs haven't even clinched a playoff spot. I was, I was mistaken. They have not yet clinched a playoff spot. Our, our according to this, neither have the, the Braves. I don't think that's – well, we know the Braves and the Cubs are going to be in. But, right. you know, I, I think it's going to be the – I feel like in my gut the Marlins hold on to that second spot in the East. I do too, yeah. And the Padres have the second spot in the West. So the, throw, the, the toss-up is, uh, are the Giants or Phillies going to be able to sneak in with a wild-card spot? And if they don't, are the Cardinals, Reds, or Brewers going to sneak in, uh, assuming that obviously one of those will finish second in the NL Central? There's, there's a lot going on here. Technically, the Mets are still in it. Technically, the Mets are still in it. Uh, but, you know, we don't really... Uh, we don't think that they're actually really in it. No, they're, they're not. They're they're a little bit too far behind the, the Reds and the Brewers and the Cardinals. They've created some separation. Um, but I, I think that my personal prediction, mm-hmm. I'm saying that the Braves and the Marlins are the one and two in the East. I'm going to say, obviously, the Dodgers and the, the, the Padres are the one and two in the West. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that the Reds are going to continue to ride the hot hand they're going to snag the second spot in the central behind the Cubs. Shout out to my friend, uh, Twitter user at Cincinnati. Allie is a big Reds fan, and I'm throwing her ad out there because I kind of mentioned her last week, but I didn't throw her ad out, so I'm doing her a favor throwing her ad out. Um, yeah. Um, and then the Reds are going to get the second spot right. in, the, in the central. Uh, in my opinion, this is how I see it playing out. I think they're hot right now. I think they have the pitching to sustain a hot streak over the, the, the next week and, and go into the playoffs. And then the wild card spots, I'm going to go and I'm going to say the Giants fade and the Phillies can't, get out of, can't really get out of their own way these days, it seems. 
And I'm going to say that the Brewers and the Cardinals are going to duke it out in the wild card. So I think we're going to get four NL Central teams. That's that's like, I mean, I, I was pretty shocked to find out how close the Brewers were to this thing, but they've won four in a row. I mean, that's all it takes to just get right back on the map. Uh, but... No, I, I think the Brewers are going to be a part of this picture. I think the Reds will get the second spot. I think the Brewers will get one of the wild card spots. I think Miami is going to pretty comfortably take the second spot um, in the East. Uh, but between the Phillies, Giants, and Cardinals for that last spot, I, I'm kind of inclined to take the Giants. Uh, I think Mike Yastrzemski getting hurt is going to create issues for them, but I don't think the time table is that far out for him and I think they still have a lot of very like under the covers good hitters right now Austin Slater Donovan Solano Alex Dickerson have all been producing to this point Mauricio Dubon is a pretty exciting player in his own right um I think they're going to come out of this okay I don't think the Phillies are going to be able to finish this off I don't think that um and I don't think the Cardinals are going to be able to finish it off either I mean their offense is really like it's it's stalled most of the year. Guys like Goldschmidt and Colton Wong, uh, Tommy Edmond, Harrison Bader, they haven't really had the same seasons that they had last year or the year before, for that matter. I mean, I Matt Carpenter is kind of like irrelevant now in that I in that regard. Really good year. Goldschmidt, he might be. I I remember Keith Hernandez saying something about Goldschmidt, um, not having it, but Keith can be kind of like a, a a clutch purist. If you will, I'll look at his stats. There's a chance I'm I'm wrong about this, but well, I just Google Keith Hernandez mentioned, so not Goldschmidt. Um, but I'm bringing Goldschmidt stats up right now. Not that it really matters for the sake of the podcast right now, but yeah, uh, he's hitting 304. He's got he's got. Oh, that's right. No, he's good. 909 OPS. I I I messed that one up. 138 OPS plus. Yeah, he's having a good year. I don't know what you're talking about. I need a new new, new co-host. Yeah, you should definitely <laughs> um, cancel me. It's Tyler O'Neill. Tyler O'Neill's the one who uh has gotten, I think, like a lot of recognition, but hasn't been hitting. His numbers are pretty bad. Uh, All right. Well, um, so you have the Giants, and who is your second team? In Brewers. The Brewers. I have Brewers and Giants in the wild card. I have the Reds getting the second spot in the Central. Fast. And Marlins getting the East. Well, let's uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this in a week when the season ends, and we will figure out who was right and who was wrong. Um, but for the meantime, let's pivot back to the Mets and Jack, it's team sport. Obviously the Mets failed on the field. That's where the winning and the losing happens. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of our least favorite losses, uh, of the season. However, we're going to talk about that next week because this is going to be our mailbag question of the week. We want to hear from you guys uh, on Twitter uh, and at uh, under the in the comments of our post on Metamorized Online. Uh, what were your least favorite losses of the season? What losses do you wish you could have back if you could kind of go back and replay those games? The the heart crushing, the soul crushing, the absolute heartbreaking losses that the Mets had. They did have a few this year, so we want to hear from you guys. In our mailbag, we will tweet this question out. Um, what losses would you like to have back from the 2020 season? 
tell you, it really hurts like seeing all these teams in the right on 500, like going cutthroat and it's a game by game thing. And I can think of at least five or six games that we should have had and didn't have uh, that slipped through our fingers. I mean, it's just like, they really were a lot closer than the, the record suggests, which is really frustrating. But uh, some guys, just remember Actually, some guys. Before um, yeah. we remember some guys, I've kind of been checking out my phone here, and there's just a little bit of mess news. This is going to be old news by tomorrow, but this is really good news. Um, Andy Martino of SNY is tweeting that Sandy Alderson, the former Mets GM, is going to return to the Mets in some capacity as part of the ownership change. That is wild. Martino says probably not as GM, um, which, sure. But that's, first of all, fantastic news because that means that Sandy is in good health, which is the most important thing. This... If you can see the smile on Jack's face right now, he's beaming. This is awesome news. Return um, of the king. Before we remember some guys and get out of here, let's just talk about this real quick. This is going to be part of the ownership change. Steve Cohen, I'm guessing, is a huge Sandy Alderson guy if this is the case. And Alderson is among the best GMs that the Mets have ever had. And he just – he was better at constructing a roster. He was better at constructing an organization. You mentioned earlier that the – in 2016, the Mets had the depth in the minors, starting pitching-wise, to bring up a guy like Gazelman or Seth Lugo. Um, Sandy was a big part of that because he was a competent GM, and he knew how to construct a roster in an organization and not waste players and, and utilize the talent that he had. So this is absolutely huge. Regardless of who uh, Steve Cohen brings in as GM, if he's going to bring in a new GM, this is very, very good news because Sandy Alderson was very good at his job. He knows how to run a baseball team. He knows how to run an organization. And just having his thoughts there, his uh, his brain to pick for Cohen and for whoever Cohen brings in, this is great news for this organization. This is awesome. This is a great note to end on. Yeah. So uh, on that note, let's, let's remember some guys. Um, Jack, would you like to go first or shall I? You go first. Okay, I'll go first. I'll go first this week. So, uh, watching Travis Darno uh, absolutely butcher the Mets this weekend and this season had me thinking about catchers, as I'm always thinking about Mets catchers. Who isn't? Um, I think that catchers are some of the best guys to remember, personally. And so this week I'm remembering a catcher who will be in the playoffs this year as the quality control coach of the San Diego Padres. And he is the owner of the first walk-off home run at City Field. His name is Rod Barajas. I, I adore Rod Barajas. He spent one year with the Mets in 2010. He hit uh, 12 home runs for the Mets that year. Just, you know, he was, he was red hot. They signed him to a one-year, $1 million contract. It's not a kind of contract that you would really see anymore. Um, he had that first walk-off home run on May 7th of 2010, and the next day, they yeah. hit another one, and it was his backup, Henry Blanco, who was built like a refrigerator. Yeah. Barajas himself was massive. Yeah. Big he had boy. three multi-home run games in his first five weeks as a Met. He cooled off in the middle of the season for sure, but he was the first. This is a ridiculous. I'm literally reading off his Wikipedia page. Yeah. Uh, this is ridiculous. He was the first Mets catcher to hit 12 or more home runs 
since Mike Piazza in Piazza's final season with the Mets. It, that's not to say they didn't have a good catcher in that span. Like, Laduca was fine, but Laduca never hit home runs. He didn't so. hit nukes, no. Barajas hit dingers. Yeah. And so Barajas, he managed eight games for the Padres down the stretch last year after they fired Andy Green. So uh, he has a managerial record. He's one in seven lifetime as a manager. He will probably manage against somewhere else because he's very well respected around the game. He's a smart dude. Yeah. Um, but he is he's on the Padres co- uh, coaching staff, and he's – I'm remembering him as he's headed to a to a playoff berth. I think he caught on that uh, 0-1 Diamondbacks team that won the World Series too. So it's going to be a pretty nice return for him. Long time since he's been in the playoffs, but 51 games in that 0-1 season, hit 160, but he was part of. Yeah, the he was he was like their Tomas Nito uh, defense he first backup. He had a World Series home run in Game Five off Mike Messina. Okay, that is that's awesome. Yeah, good for that. Kind of undoes all of the the one sixty. Uh, all right, so you got Rod Barajas and kind of Henry Blanco. I'm gonna remember a guy who's actually still in the league and actually came back into the league yesterday. AJ Ramos. Um, he pitched a clean inning with the Rockies. Uh, gave up a hit and a walk, but he also struck out a batter. Uh, this was a pretty good Dodgers team that he pitched against. It's obviously just one inning. Um, He's coming back from a torn labrum that he suffered from in the middle of the 2018 season. He didn't pitch for anybody in 2019. Uh, I don't think he even signed with a club going into spring training that year. I think the assumption was his career was going to be over. Uh, And I'm really, really happy that he has turned the tables on that Um, because he's somebody that was – he had quite a presence on Met Twitter as a as like a prankster, as a joker. He would upload videos to his Instagram from his hospital bed, like wearing his gown. Uh, he was always a good sport about uh, what was a pretty frustrating second month of the 2018 season in which they went from an 11 and one team to kind of back to 500 pumpkin baseball. Um, so shout out to AJ Ramos yeah. for listening to this. I'm really, really happy for you, and we're all hoping that this continues. Yeah, I'm gunning for AJ because he's a super easy guy to root for. Yeah. Just a solid dude. Tons of personality. Never really figured it out with the Mets. He had a couple of moments here and there, but uh, unfortunately his season, his tenure with the Mets ended prematurely. But really good to see him back in the majors because he's, he's just a solid dude. Uh, really easy guy to root for, and... Um, our, uh, our, our colleague, Marissa at Marissa Mets on Twitter, I know is, is, a, is very happy to hear yes. that he almost is back in the majors. Shout out Marissa. Shout uh, out Marissa. they had it, they had an interaction on Twitter when AJ was trying to get himself a contract, uh, during summer camp on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, I guess you can say that this is because of her. Yeah. <laughs> um, and before we go on this day in Mets history, uh, talking about kind of random obscure Mets, this is the opposite. It's a very prominent baseball player who obscurely spent time with the Mets. Willie Mays announced that 1973 would be his last season, as he, he announced this in 1973, uh, that he was going to retire when the season ended. And that, those 73 Mets were in the middle of a pennant race, yeah. and, and for a hot second, he... He became the story on this team. Five days later, they uh, held Willie Mays Day at Shea Stadium, and the end of a storybook career in which he hit 660 home runs. 
uh, which was just passed this weekend by Albert Pujols, who hit 661. And so bumping Whit Mays down to the sixth spot all time in the home run uh, race. But that's that's a, a, an interesting on this day in Mets history. I'm going to add one more thing before we head out, because I think it's kind of relevant. On this day, 1973, September 20th, that Mets team was 76 and 77. Uh, they were sixth in the National League at that time. They were over 17. They were 18 games behind the first place Cincinnati Reds, and uh, they somehow made their way back into the playoff hunt. I don't. Re- I, I still kind of don't understand how they did it, but, um, you know, with the way this team's looking now, obviously seven games left, it feels like it's over, but maybe we are singing a different tune next week because uh, I'm sure that Mays was ready to call it, uh, you know, with a week to go, and I, I'm sure he didn't think he was going to play in a World Series that year, so anything can happen, right? Let's, uh, let's hope that we are singing a different tune in a week. Let's hope that the Mets rattle off seven in a row yeah, and sneak into the playoffs and ride that momentum through October. They won't, but let's yeah. hope. Anyways, episode five. I think this was a good one, and I think Jack agrees. And Mets fans, we'll see you next week. So for Jack Hendon and all my colleagues at Metsmerize Online, go ahead and follow us at PGEPod underscore MMO on Twitter. And Mets fans, have a pleasant good evening. Thank you.